possible by gun defense. Redirect the line of fire and take it away. Okay? Those are two things you need to remember. Both step defenses, most of the problem you got is instinctive. We just take your instinctive responses and we repurpose them for combat. Makes the system easier to learn and easier to employ under stress. If it's more closer to what you know already, you're more likely to do it under stress. Does that make sense? Okay, so take that. Okay, so we know this is probably the worst possible place that we could be. But I always want to look first before you do anything. Again, because we don't necessarily know what it is. But if you know it's going, look, okay, we want to redirect the line of fire, get that barrel off our body. If I, I'm going to do that with my hand, but if I do it this way, I'm working across my body here, I'm going same side, and then I'm kind of going here and I'm wrestling with them, and it's, it's not good for me. I want to definitely go to the inside of that attack. Hand leads the motion, sweeps behind as I turn and rotate my body, and then drive in with an elbow, okay? I'm going to grab up this arm with like a bicep curl, trapping the gun on the outside, okay? I'm going to reach over, break, and take. Snatch him in the head with it if I want. Does that make sense? And if I retreat, I can tap and rack and put the gun back in the battery. Welcome back to the Johnny Tiger Experience Podcast. The best podcast in the world. <laughs> Episode 42. Today's quote. Way too often, we spend money we haven't earned to buy things we don't actually need to impress people we don't actually like. I am Johnny Tiger, and this is my reality.
And here we are with episode 42. Woohoo! We are far, far along, baby. Um, this is going to be a very busy episode. We have more Oriental goodies and an interview on top of that. But before we get into all that, got a few AMA questions I got to answer. So, without further ado, let's get to them. Ask me anything. Find the keys to your heart. The first question, quite interesting, from D, says, How do blind people clean up after their guide dog when they relieve their dog outside? How do they pick up after their dog? Now, not being a guide dog user myself, I don't feel particularly qualified to answer this question. However, I have been trained at a guide dog school in the past. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. You guys can ask me about that later. <laughs> but uh, I guess I can only speak from personal experience. The biggest secret of being blind and using a guide dog, I'm going to tell you guys right now. How do blind people pick up after their dogs? There are two ways. First, they teach the dog to eat whatever they produce, so save the trouble. Second, we follow our noses. Okay, fine, I'm full of shit. <laughs> no, um, uh, seriously, um, the truth of it is, while we are at guide dog school, we spend a lot of time training with our dog. So, during which part of the training is how to locate uh, the waste product of your dog. Uh, so when your dog is on the leash and they are doing their thing, you are taught to recognize their body movement, their body language, and you sort of get an idea of where they are and what they are up to. And after they're done, your dog is also trained to stand aside but not walk away, so you sort of get an idea of uh, where about uh, the, the uh, things, the filth you have to pick up uh, would be. So you put a baggie over your hand, get down uh, near the ground and start feeling for it. Now that is the more disgusting part. Um, a lot of us that were new to this were rather squeamish at first. It was, okay fine, I'm just going to say it, it was disgusting. Especially when the uh, trainer was saying something like, well, you don't have to think of it as dog shit, just, uh, you know, it's nice and warm, just think of it as meatballs and you wouldn't feel so bad about it. Ugh, thanks very much. That's the end of me ever liking meatballs ever again. So that's basically how we learn to pick up after our dogs. And I'm glad to say, after observing a lot of my blind friends, um, most of them are really, really diligent, really good at picking up after their dogs, comparing to 
other people, my sighted neighbors, for example, most blind people's got them beat by miles as far as cleaning up after their dogs go. The second question comes from Matt. It says, "Have you ever considered becoming a motivational speaker? Have you ever thought about doing inspirational speeches? You are so inspirational, and you do all these things. It would be a clear career path for you." Now, funny enough, about two years ago, I did make a diary entry, which I will share with you right now. That answers this very question. Previously on Johnny Tiger. I've never been into the whole inspirational speaker thing. I, you know, whenever someone says you should listen to this guy, he's so inspirational. I my I always have kind of a knee jerk reaction that nah, don't care. You know. They're only inspirational until they do something wrong and get caught. Anyway, <laughs> I'm very cynical that way.、Um, unfortunately, I have been、uh, sort of an inspirational speaker several、uh, several times. You know,、uh, giving inspirational style speech, and every time I do that. I even kind of feel I always kind of feel phony myself doing it because while I do not tell anyone things that are untrue, but the the me people see on stage when I'm being all rah rah about you know、uh, believing your dreams and、uh, know the power of your mind and go you must go forward and reach for what you want. And do that stuff. Whenever I'm on the stage talking about that, that is not the full person. That that is not me, the person、uh, that I'm presenting to people. That is me, the ideal that I'm presenting to people. At the end of the day, I come home. I'm just a guy. I'm just a person. I come home. I do what I do. I work. I eat. I uh, uh, do the same kind of thing. I do the same kind of good. I do the same kind of bad. Anyone else does. So let's go back to when I was growing up. I don't know about the rest of you.、Uh, if you had the same experience, for those of you who went blind later in life, probably not. But Growing up,、um, I was hit over the head again and again and again with blindy role models by my parents, by vision teachers, by mobility instructors, by、uh, school teachers, by family friend. Oh, you should be like so and so. He is so successful. He does this. Oh, you should be like so and so. She's so successful. She does that. And you should uh, listen to so and so's uh, 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 speech, or you should read so and so's book. They are so inspirational. And that's the kind of blind pe- person you should grow up to be, etc.、Uh, etc. And while I found a lot of these really frustrating and really annoying, 
I did fall for it to a degree. I grew up. I had a list of blind people, uh, mostly local to me,、uh, that I admired because of what was told to me about them. These people were so inspirational, so impressive, so amazing. I grew up wanting to one day be just like them, and then. One day, I was attending a conference, and just happened at the same table at, with me was one of these、uh, role models, one of these blindly role models, one of these super amazing guy that I <clears throat> was told to look up to. The guy was.、Uh, Really active in the local、uh, advocate for the blind and、uh, really outspoken, always butting head against the、uh, uh, government or yada yada yada, and you know so inspirational because he's out there doing good, fighting a good fight. And、uh, so I was really excited、uh, when I finally get to not just meet him but be. You know, sort of presented on the same platform as him, almost as an equal. We were at the same table. We were eating the same food. We were、uh, speaking at the same event. And then I spent the rest of the evening watching the guy making the fool of himself, getting drunk, getting loud, getting ridiculous, trying to get in. Trying to get fresh with the waitresses, and eventually get、uh, escorted out of the event. I think it was then that I started realizing that a lot of these role models, a lot of these people we look up to, a lot of people we admire, they're only good for admiring from a distance. That when you finally meet them. You are listening to the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast, the most chaotic and fun-filled podcast around. Hi, I am Allison, and I am here to tell you of a great way to help out your favorite podcast. Hmm, which podcast is that? Of course, this one. <laughs> Even though robot beauties like myself don't eat much, we still like to feel appreciated. Show your support by making a small monthly contribution. Go to www.patreon.com/johnnytigerexperience. Again, please visit www.patreon.com/johnnytigerexperience. Melodies of the Orient, where music promotes harmony. Welcome back to Melodies of the Orient. Today we are going to go way far back in time. Well, okay, not that far, but we are going to go back into a page of my childhood, and I'm going to show you the band that was my introduction into popular music genre. 
this group is called Music Magnetic Field. Music Magnetic Field. Quite a mouthful.、Um, it's quite an interesting little、uh, experiment.、Uh, it was led by Master Sun Jianping.、Uh, we'll just call him Master Sun、uh, for expedience' sake. Master Sun got together a group of men and women. Train them to sing together, and they released a lot of albums, but none of the songs were their original. Basically, they took all the most popular of popular music at the time in Taiwan,、uh, whether it be Cantonese, Taiwanese, or Mandarin, and they did cover songs. In a very traditional uh, choir or uh, uh, chorus style, their music was、uh, very simplified. The instrumentation was very minimal.、Uh, there was not a lot of techniques going on, but somehow they made it work, and they became immensely popular, especially. Widely used as background music, elevator music, and for a long time in Taiwan, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing them playing in the background on speakers in shopping centers. I grew up listening to classic music. Yeah, a lot of you who know me probably thinking now. What the heck? You classic music? You don't look like it. But hey, you know, I was raised on culture. My father believed that the only thing worth listening to was classic music because that would show good breeding and good culture. So I was not allowed to listen to kids' music. I was not allowed to listen to rock and roll. God forbid. Rock and roll, ah,、oh, that's Satan's music.、Uh, I was not allowed to listen to popular music or jazz and all that stuff. I was allowed classic music only until I was a teenager. And then my mother introduced me to an old cassette tape of Music Magnetic Field, and I was hooked. Their music really appealed to me because. Of this simplicity, and their articulation was good. I could understand every word and learn the songs easily, and I didn't need to be able to have good vibrato or know how to do all kinds of weird things with my voice to be able to sing the kind of song that they were putting out. It was awesome. So. I guess I got to really thank my mom for showing me that cassette, because in many ways that led me onto a road of discovery of popular music, of rock and roll, and other really good territories. So, thanks, mom. The first song I'm going to show you is an old piece called. Hold my hand. 
I don't know who the original singer was, but this cover by Music Magnetic Field is very well done. Definitely done justice to the song. It has a very old traditional Chinese tone to it, which I really really enjoy. Oh, oh, oh. 
perhaps more important than opening the door into popular music. My introduction to music magnetic field in the long run helped my own music career immensely. Unknowingly, my mother showed me something very important: that you don't need a complicated twenty-piece band to produce music that people can relate to. One person who's good with a mixer and a keyboard can make the magic happen. So. Maybe not surprisingly, many of the songs I've written for the Cat Band have similar simplistic approach, such as "Sand Hills in the Wind." The next song I'm going to show you is, in many ways, very sentimental to me. This song always made me cry in my more nostalgic or homesick moment. The first stanza of the song roughly translates. As follow, maybe you are struggling with life like I am. Maybe you already built your own world, such as I have not. Once upon a time, I still received an occasional letters from you. But now, I don't even remember your face. This song is called "I Can No Longer See You in My Dream."
Now here's an interesting little bit of、uh, personal history and little trivia. When I was little, in fact, before I was even born,、uh, and all the way up until my early teenage years, my parents owned some of the largest and most luxurious nightclubs and KTV、uh, clubs in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. And my family was a family that owned Kaohsiung's first nightclub way back when. So 
needless to say, a lot of musical groups, singers, upstarts, even semi-popular superstars, played and had concerts at our nightclubs, and that included Master Sun and his music magnetic field group. So my mom has actually met them in person many, many times, listened to them live at our club, and had had dinners with them. Now, how cool is that? Wish I was there to be introduced to them. But unfortunately, by the time I became interested in popular music, the business has declined and. My family had moved on to other ventures. Speaking of Master Sun, the first time I heard him sing solo, I was totally impressed. I mean, here's a guy who's got great voice. He played all the keyboard arrangement for the group. He did all the instrumental arrangement, and he trained the entire group. He was. Like the god in my music world for the longest time, and maybe because of that, I attempted and still attempt to emulate him in my vocal style. This next song I'm going to show you, the last song for today, is called "Without Caring," and I don't know if you can see his influence in. My own vocal after listening to him.
愿再迎来你的眼神，到最后对你难舍难分，不敢要任何承诺的保证，就怕我的心会更疼。一开始不问不问，说你比较习惯一个人。是我被放弃，脸上留一个吻，你都不肯。一开始不问不问，说你比较习惯一个人，我的爱要不回来，又怎么能向谁的？Hi, I am Johnny Tiger, your host. When I was growing up, I went to many different dojo, learned many different martial arts under many different senseis, and most of them sounded like this. But only at Richmond Martial Arts would I walk into this. Hey. <laughs> Just in case I gave you a fright. There you go. Thanks. Hey, Johnny. How are you? Jose. Hey, how are you? Good. Lots of people there. How's it going, Johnny? How are you, Johnny? Yeah, all right. Any dojo can take your money and agree to train you, but not many of them will treat you like family. Want to realize your dreams? Want to train in a friendly, professional, and encouraging environment? Contact Richmond Martial Arts today at 604-241-7624. Again, that life-changing number is 604-241-7624. Visit us at http://www.richmond. K I C K 
s.com slash that's http colon slash slash www.richmondkicks.com slash Mention the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast for your free trial class. Games from the Far East. Legends Welcome back to Tales from the Far East, where I tell you of fables and folklores from my native land. Well, okay, China. Not really my native land, I'm from Taiwan, but hey, close enough. I consider myself Chinese, and I can tell Chinese tales if I want to. So, anyway, in the last Tales from the Far East, we heard the tale of the Jingwei bird, and it was briefly mentioned that when she was a human being, uh, a little girl by the name of Nua, she was the daughter of the first emperor of Chinese history, the Dragon Emperor. Many people in Chinese culture know him as the Yan Emperor. Many, many times you will hear Chinese people referring to ourselves as Yan Huang Zi Sun. Yan, as in Yan, the, the last name of the emperor. Huang, as in Huang Di, as in emperor. So Yan Huang means Yan Emperor. Zi Sun. Now, we've been talking about families in Mandarin 101. So Zi means son, uh, child. Sun means grandchild, grandson, uh, grandchildren. So when we say we are Yan Huang Zi Sun, that means we are all uh, children of the Yan Emperor, aka Chinese people. So in the last story, we focused chiefly on his daughter, Nua, and the Jinwei bird. So this time around, we are going to give exclusive focus to the Big Yang himself, the Dragon Emperor, the Yang Emperor. Uh, so obviously, we got to go back to when he was born. It started in a far away place in a remote village. It was a dark and stormy night. A new infant was born. Now, in itself, it wasn't a very uh, special event. There were babies born all the time. Uh, back then, there was no video game, no computer game, no Facebook, no Twitter. People had nothing to do. They just hunted, fished, and did you know what? You know, to pass the time. So there were a lot of babies. So having a new baby was nothing special on its own, except this baby was different. This baby had horns on his head. Holy crap, said one of the villagers. It's a minotaur. No, you dumbass, said another villager. That's not a minotaur, it's a satyr. <laughs> no, 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 said the father of the newborn son. My wife wouldn't give birth to a minotaur 
or sadder. I mean, we are very good people. We are special people. We are important people. It's a dragon. Aside from having horns on his head, this infant also have transparent skin, so you could see the skeleton and uh, organs uh, inside the body. Sounds kind of gruesome, but I'm sure back then it was kind of a novelty. So, suffice to say, the Yang Emperor was probably, most likely, the first mutant in the world, and it was quite. A fortunate event that he was born among a race of very tolerant people,、uh, a race of people who didn't drown their babies just because their babies look different. Can you imagine if he was born、uh, in Europe, there wouldn't have been Chinese people after that. <laughs> so, anyway, the child grew up. To be a very productive member of the society, and soon after he turned 18, he was nominated to be the chieftain of all the land, and henceforth be known as Yang the Great, or the Dragon Emperor. One day, the Dragon Emperor realized that there was a big problem that. His people, the Chinese people, was facing a crisis. What was the crisis? You ask. Well, like I said, people back then had nothing to do but fished, hunted, and made babies. That meant there were more and more people every day, and yet there were no new. Natural resources, or shall we say, the natural resources weren't being replenished fast enough to support all these people. So there were more and more people, and they were quickly running out of natural resources. They were running out of fish to fish, and they were running out of game to hunt. Little did he know that ten thousand years after that. Chinese people would still be having exactly the same problem: too many people, too little resources. But anyway, Dragon Emperor decided to do something about it. We cannot just rely on the fish and the birds and the beasts to provide sustenance. We have to find a new way of sustaining ourselves. Ah, I know," he said. We are going to grow our own food. We are going to start eating vegetables and grains. So he went out into the field and surveyed the mountains and woods and grasslands around his village. He realized there were thousands upon thousands of different herbs and grains and. All kind of fruits and all kind of stuff growing out there, wild potatoes and artichokes and stuff like that. But he didn't know which ones were good to eat and which ones were poisonous. So, deciding upon how important his task was, he said, "Well, since I am of the mutant 
constitution. I am not like a, a normal person. These things, if they were poisonous, probably won't do me in. So tell you guys what, you will appoint a few villagers to follow me around every day, and I will attempt to sample all these vege uh, vegetations out there, and we will document all the effects of what I find. What I find that's edible, we will take a seed or uh, a root, we'll dig it up, we'll transplant it back at the village and we'll try to replicate it. What I find that's poisonous or no good for you, we will document it so people know not to eat them. Even now, there is uh, a very archaic tome in China. It's called Ben Cao Gang Mu. Basically means the book of all herbs. And this is said that this book was the result of the Dragon Emperor's diligent experimentation. So you can say the Dragon Emperor was the first ever, the grandfather of all herbologists. Anyway, that's afterward. So having his mind set up, he set out with his followers and he went to the field, went to the mountains, went to the grassland, went to the woods, and started to sample anything he could find, like anything, weed, leaves, roots, fruit, uh, flowers, and so on and so on. And on average, he got poisoned about 70 times a day, sometimes so badly that he would pass out and go into convulsion and start hemorrhaging. Now these were probably poisons that would have killed a normal human being, but since he was a mutant, they just made things really bad for him, but he always recovered. But he went on, I have to find enough food to feed my people. I need to be able to have my people sustain themselves without having to rely on the fish, the birds, the beast, he said. So he went on doggedly. Eventually, his dedication touched the gods in heaven, and they sent down a gift for him. This was a small whip, like a riding crop. And all he had to do was touch this crop to any of the plants and the whip would re reveal to him the properties of these plants so he wouldn't have to taste them anymore. And it was with the assistance of the gods and his own hard work that Chinese people invented farming and herbology and Chinese medicine. Now, if I were a good person, if this was a good fairy tale, we would end the story right here. But if you were like me, I was a, a bit of a pest when I was a little boy. So when I heard this story, and when the story was ending, 
where we are right now. I asked the dreaded question. No, no, no. The story can't end here. So what happened to the Dragon Emperor after that? What happened? Like, it can't have ended here. You know, the guy must have gone somewhere else, have new adventures, and so on and so on. So, what became of him? Well, he died. I mean, come on. Here's a dude who went out there and tasted everything that's growing out there. What do you think was going to happen to him? He died. How did he die? You ask. Didn't he have the godly whip that would reveal the properties of the plant to him? Well, it was a sad story. One day, the dragon emperor went out into the field, and in the remote corner of the field, he saw some crawling, spiky vines with yellow flowers on them that he never seen before. Hmm, he said. I wonder what these do. Well, unfortunately, that was one day he forgot to. Bring his whip with him, so he reverted back to his old experimentation. I am going to taste it. So he picked one of the flowers and ate it, and the poison in the flower ate clearly through his stomach and killed him. From that day forth, these yellow flowers were known to Chinese people. As the stomach-cutting plant. You are listening to the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast. podcast. Support Night Strike Self Defense for the Blind. Give the gift of confidence, freedom, independence, and health by going to www.gofundme.com/nightstrike. That is www.gofundme.com/nightstrike. Chinese lessons at your fingertip. Hello, Ni Hao. Welcome back. Welcome back to Mandarin 101. This is a segment where I attempt to teach you some basic vocabularies and phrases in the Mandarin language. Disclaimer: As usual, I'm not a professional teacher of Mandarin, but I have taught English as second language in the past, and my English is almost as fluent as my Mandarin. Which means we are royally screwed. <laughs> Today it's almost like a review section. Although I am going to teach you guys a couple of new vocabularies. So we are still in the family section. We have taught and talked about and listened to segments 
regarding grandparent, parent, mother, father, child, and so on and so on. Now, a lot of you may not know this, but in the Chinese culture, the concept of adopted or god family is quite prolific. This is to say that almost everyone in Taiwan, in China, in Hong Kong, would have a godfather, a godmother, a god family, and then on top of that, there's a whole slew of、uh, siblings you can、uh, swear to or adopt later in life. That is a really big part of Chinese culture. When you become really, really good friends, this usually happens in college time. When people become extremely good friends, that they know they will want to be friends for the rest of their life, they often go through a ceremony and become each other's adopted sibling. The ceremony usually involves something a little bit silly, like.、Uh, Dripping a drop of your、uh, blood into a bowl of water, and then each one of you take a sip from that bowl. So essentially, you are like vampires. You drink each other's blood. Now you have each other's blood inside your body, and you are、uh, as one family. Now, that is one variation. There are others,、uh, such as.、Uh, Doing a prayer to the heaven and have the heaven or have Buddha bless you to become、uh, a single unit or、uh, to become of the same blood.、Uh, very,、uh, very, very many other variations exist, but the ceremony is not the important part. The important part is from this point on, you became what we call Ba Xiong Di, or Ba Jie Mei. The word Ba is from the phrase Bai Ba, B I B A, Bai Ba. Bai means sworn,、uh, cer- ceremonial,、uh, promised. Ba means、uh, as one family, as.、Uh, One unit,、uh, ba, come from the word、uh, ba, as one unit. Usually talking about chair, ba, 椅子 one chair.、Uh, we will go into、uh, item units later, but for now, just know the word ba symbolizes chair. So, ba, in this case, means You will share one chair. You are two people, or it can be more than two. Sometimes there have been ten people, a hundred people swear to become ba family, or adopted family, or in a more modern term, they would、uh, become a clan. So let us backtrack a little bit. Siblings, brothers, sisters, is called 兄弟姐妹兄 S H O N G means older brother. 弟
D-E means younger brother. Jie, J-I-A, older sister. Mei, M-E-I, younger sister. Shung Di Jie Mei means sibling. So in this case, Chinese people are a little bit more long-winded. Well, you know, in English, we just say sibling. In Chinese, we are essentially saying older brother, younger uh, <laughs> older brother, younger brother, older sister, younger sister. Quite a mouthful. Trying to say that ten times really fast. <laughs> um, so when I say someone is my ba shong di, I'm saying this is my adopted or sworn brother. Or if I say this is my ba jie mei, this is my adopted or sworn sister. Now that is different from God family. Okay, the word for God family is gun, G-U-N, gun. So this is when we quickly review what we've learned before. Uh, Godfather, gun, dear. As in daddy, or gan ba, as in godfather. Godmother, gan ma, or gan niang. Niang being the more antique, more formal term for mother. Godson, gan. Erz means son. God daughter. Gan nu er. Gan nu er. Nu means girl. Er means child. Girl child. Daughter. Gan nu er. So in this with this logic. Uh, God, older brother, gan, ge, God, younger brother, gan, di, God, older sister, gan, jie, God, younger sister, gan, mei. So many people will uh, ask, so what is the difference between sworn or adopted family versus God family. Well, usually God family is determined by your parents. When you are born, your parents may say, okay, their best friend, Joe, and his family is your God family. In this case, their family is responsible for you. When someone become your gan family or god family, their entire family become uh, your god family. So you can't pick and choose. But when someone become my ba shong di, for example, my sworn brother, then only that person become my sworn brother. His brother, his sister, they got nothing to do with me. I didn't uh, swear to become sibling with them. My relationship is only with you, whom I've 
uh, drank the blood with, whom I've done the prayer with, whom I've gone through the ceremony with. So it's not as all-encompassing as a God family. So now that I got you thoroughly confused, this will be it for today's Mandarin 101. Thank you for being here with me. See you guys in the next segment. The following commercial contains some strong language and suggestions of a sexual nature. If you are under the legal age or are easily offended, please skip forward two minutes. Now, right now. Still here? Okay then, here we go. And now, a word from our sponsor. Welcome to the rail. Are you looking for love? Oh yeah, we've got love. What is it that you like about my tits? You have construction tits. I sure do enjoy snacking on the pink velvet meat curtains. He masturbated in my inbox. Oh my lord. Are you looking for peace and tranquility? We got plenty of that too. You are nobody to me. I don't know you, but if I know anything about Mexican men, is that they are only out for one thing. So listen, Fleabag, leave me alone and stop messaging me or I'm going to mute you. I think you're full of shit, to be honest. I don't like how you talk about women. I was raised by a woman. I got a daughter and all that nigga. Fuck you, nigga. Fuck all that, you heard me? You bitch. I hope you know that it's only gonna get worse for you. What you did to me was not good and you will pay for it. Or are you looking to extend the hand of friendship? You all either fucking get along with me on here or mute me, or guess what? I will just fucking disappear and never fucking come on here ever again. Don't mind me, I'm using the restroom. I apologize. I normally don't do this on a question, but I wanted to get my feelings out. I'm obese. Would you sit next to me on a plane? Get on my thread, follow the rules. Smack that ass thread. All chatter, no text. So, if you're just looking to bone your way through a bunch of visually impaired bitches and hoes, or just wish to cast judgement on somebody for having a speech impediment, why not get Varail today? Varail is available from the Apple and Android app stores, no purchase necessary. This is an AMI This Week Shortcut. I'm Grant Hardy for Accessible Media at Sirota's Alchemy Martial Arts and Life Skills Center. My brother Graham shares his thoughts on the lesson. The challenging thing is the coordination. You know, you, you have to be very meticulous about maintaining your balance and your stance at all times. Five your head. Nine. Block, punch. And when there are specific choreographed ways of moving your body, you have to remember what you're doing and you have to maintain your coordination. Graham is right. There are lots of challenges when it comes to balance and blindness, but Master Sirota has lots of experience creating adaptive classes. I started with um, a small group of kids, uh, mostly kids with intellectual and developmental disabilities. As I got more confident and more skilled, uh, we expanded our programs and then we went from working with you know, kids with, for example, autism or Down syndrome to uh, working with people in wheelchairs like with spinal cord injuries and um, cerebral palsy. Then we expanded to people with visual impairment. Master Sirota's classes are highly descriptive and tactile. Making sure everyone has a concept of spatial awareness is very important. And 
he taught me a pretty cool breakaway move. I can feel that he's grabbing with two hands, but if his thumbs are on the bottom, compared to on top, it's gonna be a different escape because I have to go against the thumb. Yes, that's right. So always hand oh, on top. Oh man, that's tricky. For me, it was uh, also my way of uh, returning energy, positive energy back to others, uh, making a difference in the world. We're on TV, I have to look good. <laughs> and according to class participant Almond, learning self-defense techniques makes a huge difference. It's very important to be able to defend yourself. Um, just because, you know, anytime you leave your house, you know, you're, you're stepping out into the unknown and you just never know what life is going to throw at you. So it's, it's always good to be prepared. Palm strike, palm strike. Four. Palm strike, palm strike. Class participant Gary feels the same way. Uh, well, I think it just gives everybody a, a sense of confidence when you're out in a boat and, you know, cities are getting a bit more crazy than, than they used to be. And, you know, it's not like it's that violent really, but just I think if you walk around knowing you know how to protect yourself, you'll feel safer and do more things. Two, three. Today's interview is very special indeed. The Johnny Tiger Experience podcast is very glad to have special guest Master Michael Sarota with us on the show. Master Sarota is a pioneer of self-defense for the blind here locally in British Columbia. He has been doing this for many, many years and have taught many students. So without further ado, let us tune into the first full-length featured interview with Michael Sarota. You gotta hear first, only here on the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast. And here we are on the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast with very esteemed Master Michael Sarota from the Sarota Alchemy. Um, hello, Master Sarota. Hi there. Pleasure to be. Yeah, it is a real pleasure to have Master Sarota on the show because, as we uh, most of our listeners know, the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast, we try to introduce uh, the topic of uh, visually impaired people and martial arts to the world at large. Uh, we have uh, interviewed quite a few um, visually impaired, blind martial artists around the world. But we haven't actually had a lot of opportunity to introduce their sensei and Master Sarota uh, here locally in BC has been teaching martial art to the blind for how many years now? Oh, uh, I would say about 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So I, I would, I guess you would be the um, pioneer <laughs> doing this. Yeah, I'm working on it. Definitely. Um, I believe that martial arts is um, you know, great benefit to everyone, so we want to make our environment very inclusive and um, provide opportunities for all to benefit. Definitely. Um, and uh, uh, Michael Sarota has been doing this for a long time, and uh, so far, locally, uh, even in Canada, there's not a lot of uh, possibilities, uh, special martial art programs for people with disabilities, uh, including people with uh, visual impairment. So, how did you get started? Uh, like, what made you want to do this in the first place? Um, you mean teaching people with uh, visual impairment? Mm -hmm. or 
Um, well, we, we started about uh, 18 years ago. We started working with uh, uh, kids with more like autism and um, various uh, uh, like intellectual developmental impairments, and uh, and then we kind of progressed. I wanted to see it, see it growing. And uh, we started offering it to uh, various other demographics, for example, people with wheelchairs, like with spinal cord injuries, and also uh, people with visual impairment. So when it came to people who are blind, um, pretty much I kind of created my own program at, uh, at that time and started trying to figure out what will work and what doesn't work. And then, um, yeah, a lot of it had to be self-experimental because um, there's no, no one teaching it so and uh, so the I'll have to figure out how it works and then uh, eventually introduce it to uh, our community Wow so it started with uh, teaching uh, kids with autism um, autism yeah special needs correct so what gave you the initiative to want to do this because it is not a very conventional thing for uh, like did you just decided you was there a personal reason or, or? Um, it was a way for me to uh, give back to the community to return positive energy to others and then as I got more as I embraced it um, then I got more involved and um, kind of felt this is what I'm here to do and and uh, yeah so I just um, kept going and I kept going and so it was more of a a way for me to, I initially it was for me to return positive energy back to others. And uh, and then we wanted to see, I wanted to see how um, we could do a, more of a successful program and um, yeah, include everyone else, include everyone in, in martial arts. You know, a lot of times the martial arts people say martial arts is a great benefit to everyone, everyone can benefit, but when you go to various schools all over the place, um, it's it's not really the case. Uh, you know, a lot of the schools will focus on the elite level or the high performance um, level of martial arts or sport, um, but or they're just focusing on self defense. But it's more for the able body kind of uh, people who um, don't have various impairments. But we wanted to say that our martial arts is, is for everyone. Now, how can we facilitate that? And um, before we go any further down this branch, I think um, would be pretty interesting for our listener to know a bit about yourself. So, um, what is your background in martial art uh, in your personal development? Okay, uh, so I, I started uh, about 36 years ago training in martial arts. Um, my I started off with Taekwondo. Um, then over the years, I uh, learned and studied um, various other martial arts, including Hapkido, um, Eskrima, and just uh, some grappling and different things like that. But the two core martial arts systems that we teach um, is uh, Taekwondo and Hapkido. That is interesting because um, quite often in the martial arts circle, Hapkido and Taekwondo practitioners don't really see eye to eye. So. Uh, as a person who's been involved with both, do you think there's a common ground, or do you think they are quite opposite? Um, I think I don't think there's any uh, opposition. You know, every instructor, every school has a platform to do whatever he or she wants to do, and uh, without that, you know, this is what we feel is the best, and we teach it in that way. Um, so there's a, you know, how we do it is that. Um, 
with the Hapkido, it's a very sensitivity-based martial art. It's, it's very defensive martial art. So I actually feel it's fantastic for people who wish to show the terrorism because it's all touch-based. And, um, yeah, it can be quite easily implemented with a few adaptations. But in terms of between the two martial arts, we teach both because we feel that, I feel that there's benefits to both. And we have also uh, heard a lot of uh, blind people mention that uh, after trying Taekwondo, they find that because uh, Taekwondo is a range, more long-distance based attack system, that a lot of blind people find they have a hard time with that. Um, so did you have to add, uh, do any kind of adaptation to the techniques for them to work better for blind people? Yeah, you know, um, we... we ha- I guess it's all personalized, um, but the, uh, the Taekwondo is fantastic for, um, you know, balance, course motor skill development, coordination, um, flexibility, agility, uh, all those, just overall fitness, um, all those attributes is, is great. Can a person who's training with Taekwondo can benefit regardless if they're blind or not. So when we, when we teach martial arts at Taekwondo and Hapkido, we're, you know, one component is self-defense, but other components is just overall balance, fitness, health. Um, so all different. It's all it's all kind of integrated to, into one. Uh, so we, we don't just say, um, okay, Taekwondo is this, and Hapkido is this, and Scream is this. It's all, you know, we work together with, we combine it to make it a positive experience for everyone. Uh, and there's other benefits. Um, not necessarily striking oriented, but there's other benefits in all martial arts that somebody can benefit, can learn from. So, personally speaking, uh, what got you started in martial art yourself? Well, myself, uh, um, I was a child and uh, I was bullied at school and kind of didn't, you know, didn't have the confidence. And so, at that time, my parents thought this would be a, a good thing for me to do. And did you ever? Like uh, use it to get back at the bullies, or was that part of why you? Um, I think I over <laughs> over time I had the confidence to stand up to them, uh, or to stand up verbally perhaps. Uh, uh, so I think that it's just uh, building that confidence of myself, uh, but not necessarily going and you know punching and kicking people. I think that's a very mis uh, nomer you know, that a lot of people think that uh, you practice martial arts. So if someone bully you, you beat them up, but. Quite uh, more often, it's the case that once you learn the martial art, you have the confidence to stand up for yourself, and you end up don't don't actually have to fight anybody. Right, and then also the bullies, you know, will pick on somebody who's the the weak link, and they'll fight someone who's the easiest target of prey. So if, if a child or a person has that confidence about them, that feels good about themselves, then they are not really targeted by the by the bullies. Mm-hmm. So. Was it challenging uh, starting programs for people with autism and then so on for people with uh, other disability? Uh, you know, because socially, even today, it is not widely accepted that people with various disabilities can or should do something so physical. Um, it, it was it was challenging from the point of view that this is. It was a new uh, endeavor for me. It was a new task for me. Um, there was a lot of learning. Uh, not necessarily learning how to teach martial arts, but learning about you know, how to communicate with someone who's blind or, or how, 
how do you engage someone with various you know impairments and so that was that was uh, it was challenging because it was new but it was also very rewarding and it continues to be very rewarding and it's very um, you know that's just my personality I want to be challenged I want to uh, I'm not really into kind of being the same and stagnation and I feel that there's no growth so I, I love that those type of challenges because it, it takes me out of my comfort zone so I can so I can grow as a person and, and uh, at the same time help others. A lot of our listeners may not know this yet, but uh, Master Sorota also uh, is in the Black Belt magazine. Um, and I believe you have involvement with Team Canada as well, don't you? Um, so I, I have worked, like this is where in a Paratech I so I have worked with that they used to work with various uh, organizations to promote uh, Paratekwondo as a sport, um, and it, it actually has become an official sport in the 2020 Paralympic Games um, for people with um, upper limb deficient athletes, uh, so people who are with amputees. Um, but we also already have events for uh, individuals who with cerebral palsy or uh, physical impairments, uh, uh, people who are with intellectual disabilities, and also um, I know that competition opportunities will be available in the future for people with visual impairments as well. That would be so awesome. Um, how do you handle the subject of sparring for your students? Because in Taekwondo, a lot of the sparring is a point system uh, or like semi-contact. And that's very difficult for someone, especially who's totally blind. So do you just avoid that or... Um, so, uh, that, that is correct. Uh, so we do not do any sparring um, in, in, in that class, but a lot of the things that we could do where it's like self-defense based, where people are you know, doing joint losses, and takedowns and throws and stuff like that, that is pretty much um, implemented and our training is, provides that, but it's more in a structured, safe environment so no one, no, the, no one gets hurt. Okay, so when... Um so for, for the visually impaired students, uh, what is uh, approximately the advancement procedure like? Do you uh, like test them on techniques and, and or, or how does That's that right. So, so exactly the same as everyone else, uh, but there's certain adaptations. So we, uh, like we will not do sparring, uh, but they will do everything else. Mm. Okay, so um, how much a part of the program is the fitness component. Um, every class is different, um, so we want to make the classes dynamic, exciting, and and um, challenging. So, you know, overall, it's all fitness-based. So, look, if they come for an hour, they're for an hour they're they're moving. They're they're it could be aerobic or anaerobic, or but there's there's constant movement. So it's, it is it is all very active participation. Now, from talking to various blind martial artists uh, from all over the world, I've noticed that a big thing that stops a lot of people from constant training or advancing their training is usually transportation and cost. Do you think that is a valid concern? Or, and if so, do you think there is uh, anything should, that can be done to help? Um, yeah, abs- absolutely. I totally agree. Um, Transportation is, a, I would say, is the biggest challenge for for the, uh, for our students. Um, 
that they rely on, you know, most will rely on public transportation, and it really depends. Uh, yeah, it depends where, uh, you know, our school is located and where they live, and it could be a, it could be a very uh, long journey for them to get to our school. Um, so it, it is that I would say transportation is, is a, one of the biggest challenges. Uh, the cost as well, uh, so it depends on, you know, every school will probably charge different rates, and, um, but I know that a lot of people with, uh, um, with visual impairment have very, you know, are on a limited budget, so, so that becomes a, can become a hindrance as well. Um, how to overcome that, yeah, that one, that's what I'm working on right now is how to, you know, how to make it where people will come in. With financial or tuition, that's not a problem. We can provide scholarships or even offer, you know, like free classes and lessons, which we have done, um, or make it, you know, the, the people pay a small, small amount just so they know that there's some exchange. Um, so that with the tuition part, that's quite easy for us. But with the transportation, that's kind of out of our domain because it's really up to the participant to find a way for him or her to show up to our school. Do you think that um, self-defense and martial art training for the blind should be, uh, if not totally incorporated, at least subsidized partly or fully by the government or uh, be part of the local program for the blind, such as uh, CNIB or the blind sports? Uh, well, you know, once, we, once again with the politics, and the, uh, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's a different, uh, totally different domain. I understand with, um, for example, like blind sports organizations, they will probably they will receive funding for sports that are already, um, you know, Paralympic sports or the uh, that will that will opportunities for the organization to send athletes somewhere. Um, but there's also I know they have you know programs uh, for like life skills programs and you know just integration and all that kind of stuff. So. Uh, definitely, I feel it, it would be a positive thing, and I have done some workshops with uh, CNIB in the past, and for their adults and their youth, and uh, you know it's fantastic. So I try to, and I would love to do something ongoing. Um, but I guess the uh, everyone has to be on the same page. Everyone has to see the value in it, and uh, they have to see and make a commitment to making it as an ongoing program. And that requires resources, requires money, requires. You know, additional work. So, it's uh, it's, it's it, it is for my part. I'm ready. Where where we are committed, but when we're working with other organizations, it, it does it, it, it takes a partnership, and the other party has to be you know mutually involved. Uh, as to funding from the government, oh, I'm I'm not sure how. You know, of course that'd be fantastic for everyone, but I'm not really sure how that can. That can happen. And now for more badassery, only here on the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast. The best podcast in the world.
Talking to a lot of sighted people, I hear that they feel that blind people should、uh, mostly stick to things like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo because those are pure grapple-based martial art. But as a,、uh, a blind martial artist myself and being more of a striker,、um, I have spoken to other blind martial artists that think. That there's no reason why blind people should be limited to those martial arts. Now, as a person who's teaching Taekwondo and Hapkido yourself,、um, do you think that it is true that blind people、uh, is just more limited and should、uh, go into those areas, or、uh, do you think that blind people should be able to try to go for whatever they feel like? Absolutely, I, I fully agree that everyone has the should have the opportunity to do whatever they like,、um, um, and not just which martial art, or but it's just you know person's personal choices in life.、Um, so some some people enjoy the grappling component,、um, some do not.、Uh, you know, just like it, it, and it doesn't really matter if they're blind or not blind. You know, we have students who like the hands-on, and some. You know who prefer not.、Um, so everyone will have a different,、uh, be attracted to different things. And、um, but in terms of opportunities, you know, they, everyone should have the equal opportunities and the same opportunities. And if they prefer to do Tai Chi, for example, or yoga, or、um, you know, like the more of a gentle, more soft,、uh, meditative arts, great. If they want to do,、uh, you know, karate or Taekwondo or. Something else, like more like striking-oriented arts, fantastic. If they want to do, you know, like you said, grappling or Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that that's great as well. So I think it's it's up to the individual to decide what they feel is the best for them and、uh, have the opportunity to explore it. We just need to create these platforms for people to have those opportunities. So,、um, do you have any advice, suggestions for other instructors if they were to be approached by a blind? Uh, person for the first time、uh, asking for、uh, to train、uh, because there's usually a lot of hesitation and a lot of blind people have experience being turned down outright without giving a chance.、Um, well, for instructors, like for example, we do even offer.、Um, I travel to the various countries and I do provide instructor training,、um, and we even have online courses for people instructors who want to learn how to work with people. Various、um, special abilities, so th- there's a lot. Of I think education is really important for the instructors. I feel that most martial instructors have the good heart, have good positive intentions to to help as many people as possible. I think the the biggest challenge is、um, of the unknown, their their fear of how do I work with somebody who's blind? You know, how do I talk to them? How do I should I touch them or not touch them? Should I do this or do that? And、uh, so once We can, in my work that I do, educating other instructors. So once I we dismantle those fears and say, okay, you know, this is how you do this, or this is how you do that,、um, then they feel quite comfortable and confident in working with people with a、uh, uh, you know visual impairment.、Um, but I think it's it's the education is a really really important component.、Um, so they so the instructors can acquire that, not. Martial arts skills, but more just awareness and more、um, understanding about what is, you know, how does a person with 
who's blind, you know, about their cave, about, you know, if they have a dog, you know, like, what, what do you feel? You know, we have instructors where I've done seminars where I say, well, what do we do with the dog? And, you know, because it's, it's all those kind of questions they have to figure out. Or where do we, or, you know, just to, to certain people, it's no, not, not a big deal, but to some, it, it's, it's a lot of unknown. And if instructors can just learn, provide, we provide answers for them, and they can learn how to handle these situations, then I feel they'll be more um, uh, open to working with people with uh, various impairments. Well, that's a very, very valuable service. Now, you talk about guide dogs and canes. I often get approached by uh, blind people during training and say, uh, do you uh, know any techniques, uh, self-defense techniques involving the cane and stuff like that? Um, is that something that you cover in your program, or...? Uh, we actually do. We do some uh, cane self-defense, that we do, we do teach that. Awesome. And so, as far as uh, for cane self-defense go, is there a specific type of cane you would recommend? Because the standard folding cane just seems kind of flimsy. <laughs> uh, true, uh, but we, w- we want to teach them with what they're already using. Because um, I know they're not going to get a different cane. So even though that is not very strong compared to like a wooden cane, um, but it's, it's, it can still it can still be we we adapt it so, so it can be still used. In a self defense situation, what do you uh, recommend uh, for a guide dog user? Should they just let go of their dog and deal with the crisis at hand? Hope the dog won't run away, or what is the etiquette? Around that, um, I, we have we we train both the scenarios, um, but I I feel that the best is to let go of the dog so your hands are free so you could do uh, the striking if you need to or escaping and um, and also your balance will be better because we don't want the dog to you know if the dog gets excited and they pull or something like that then it just adds another another. Uh, a component to make this, uh, the situation more challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, do you have any um, uh, insight for blind people, like how best to approach uh, a dojo, an instructor, uh-huh. and ask, to ask for training? Because a lot of them um, are very hesitant uh, in fear. Yeah, of I, I, I feel that uh, the best is, you know, wherever they live, um, you know, go Google, you know, find find a, a martial arts school in their neighborhood uh, and uh, or what martial arts there is perhaps uh, that appeals to them. Um, and just, just email them or phone them and say, you know, just be very upfront. They say, you know, I, I'm interested in learning martial arts, but I, you know, I'm, I'm blind or, you know, whatever, whatever. I have, you know, partial vision. Um, is that something you can facilitate for me? If they say, you know, if they say no, of course, you know, I would say just move on to the, another school. If they say yes, or if they say perhaps or maybe, you know, then see if you could schedule an appointment with them and just say, you know, can I come in and meet you? And uh, then we can kind of go from there. They might offer, they might not be comfortable you uh, person being in the group lessons, but they might offer private lessons. Um, so so this way they get, they get to know the person and get to know how they feel and what works, what doesn't work. And maybe eventually integrate the person into the group lessons. Like I, there might be different opportunities um, 
for for the school and the instructor. But we just need to. I think the participants need to just be direct and and uh, contact the uh, whatever school they feel is appropriate and uh, just tell them up front. You know, this is what you know my situation and are you willing to work with me? Now, when you come to private lesson, there is a bit of a dilemma because a lot of instructors have a different pricing for private instruction uh, versus group rate. Um, All right. So, in the case such as you mentioned, if uh, the instructor feels it's uncomfortable to get a blind student in the group class, so uh, would want him or her to take a few private lessons. In this case, do you think it's fair for the blind person to have to pay the much higher rate pricing for uh, private lessons? Well, um, I personally feel yes, um, because you know the the instructor or the professional is providing the service, um, so it's like a, a person going for you know massage therapy or occupational therapy or and that that's what they offer and that's their that's their fee. Um, so it could be, it's like when you go to the doctor, that's the, that's what he charges. Um, so I do feel it's, it's fair for the person to, for the professional to ask whatever he or she wants to ask, but it's up to the, the client or the student to decide if that's what they want to pay or not pay. Mm-hmm. Um, now, with the... Because ultimately, sorry, ultimately they, they do get an individualized class and they get the instructor all to themselves for that one hour or whatever the session is so that is the instructor's you know that's his his or her payment i think the uh one concern i hear from uh some other uh blind students is well why should we have to pay that if it's an instructor that feels uncomfortable uh uh, how how do I know that I'm not being duped into having to pay that much higher price when I could have done fine just in a group class to begin with? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how to answer it. Um, uh, with us with, at our school, we do offer group and private lessons, and we always wanna we always do what we feel is best for the students and what environment he or she he or she should be at. Um, at our school, the private lessons are more expensive than group lessons. Um, and uh, but we base it on not base it on the person and what we feel is the best for for that individual at that time. Um, but yes, of course there has to be a trust issue, and um, I feel that most martial arts instructors are honorable and you know have ethics and integrity. So if they if they feel that they can they can only facilitate in a private lesson environment. That's probably their comfort zone, or that's what they feel is the best for for that environment at that time. And I would honor it, or you know, look elsewhere. Um, but sometimes you have to also realize that you know, you put a uh, if you put an individual with, let's say, who's blind in a group of individuals who are not blind, there's that liability issue as well, and they do perhaps need certain type of support that um, would make it more. You know, depends on the type of martial art and what they're doing. Uh, there could be a you know a risk factor or a liability issue, or you know a lot of instructors are very concerned about negligence and stuff like that. So they want to make sure that there's no harm that comes to the students, no harm comes to the school. That does raise a very interesting point. Does teaching uh, blind or any disabled people 
uh, increase the insurance uh, you have to pay uh, for the school? Uh, it, it does. It does not. No. So when we talk about liability, um, uh, are we mostly talking about like what what would happen? Like what would people see on TV or like what would happen on the media? Uh, since it doesn't really affect your insurance, uh, what kind of liability are we talking about? Uh, uh, so liability, uh, so if, uh, or negligence. So if, a, if an instructor, if a student, uh, let's say if an instructor doesn't have a lot of experience or has no experience working with a blind person, and he feels that putting him in a putting that individual in a group environment is not really safe, um, and that person gets hurt or Someone else gets hurt, um, then they are they are they are negligent because they they could have foreseen that there might be a, a, a risk factor and they didn't do anything about it and they still allow it to happen. So then they become uh, liable for any injury that happens. So, for example, if a, let's say two participants and they're sparring or they're doing something and then uh, one person gets hit and gets injured, um, if the instructor did not follow the procedures, uh, safety, or they felt that that there was some, it, it just yeah, some 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 issues in the in the safety protocols. He or, or the school could be held uh, liable for for the injury. But that's with everyone. It's happened. It doesn't have to do with blind people. That's how it's just how it is. But we a lot of instructors will be very very mindful of that because they want they don't want to get any of a trouble um also if you put add the um the uh the, they don't have the experience of working with the visual impaired visual impaired people and there's the fear factor of they don't really know exactly what to do uh with a blind person um th- th- it just adds a lot of other um variables that might get them not to want to participate and not want to welcome people who are blind so it's just it's just uh once the individual acquires the experience, instructors acquire the experience, then it becomes a lot easier for them to, you know, have classes and integrate people and have become more inclusive. But at the beginning, if they if they lack that confidence and the skills, um, they might be able to. They might say, "Okay, I only want to do private lessons or offer private lessons because that one they can they can uh, manage it better and they have they know exactly what to do and what not to do because there's no other variables, there's no other students." There's nothing else there, just him and the students. That is a very valid point, actually, because um, when I work with uh, blind students, I find that it makes me quite nervous, especially when they have to do pad work with each other. <laughs> right. I, I know with you know I know with a sighted student, you know if a if a punch or kick slips through, they most likely can get out of the way in time to not take the full hit. But with a blind student, it's really there's a big unknown factor there, and you, you do have to work on that trust issue uh, before you can get really comfortable with them to say, okay, here's a pad, and go have, have fun. Right. Um, now, we have seen some... Uh, uh, specific martial art for the blind and uh, such as the one touch program and obviously I'm not going to ask you if you think you know that they're, they're good or bad because that's just very political and stuff like that but um, in your own experience how much adaptation 
do you think that blind people really uh, need in training, uh, or sh uh, do you think that a blind person actually can uh, walk into most dojos and find a way to uh, make that work? Um, I, I do believe there's there's um, requirements and adaptations, and also you want to make sure that the facility is uh, safe. Because um, you know, if you have things lying around, or if you have different heights and they have to step up or step down, then that makes it, uh, you know, that could bring injury to the person. Um, I think the biggest adaptation is that often, especially at the beginning, they require somebody there uh, who's sighted to guide them through it. So it doesn't have work, as you said. Um, if one person is, if two people are blind, and they're holding past for each other, it, it, it can be quite dangerous. Um, you know, they can miss or they just don't know when the other person is hitting and they don't breathe out and they can get winded. And so it could be, or they move and the other person doesn't know that they moved and they, instead of hitting the pad, they hit the face. So all of that, can, so that, those are the, the major adaptations. Um, so a lot, often at our classes, there will be, let's uh, say, instructors or whomever is working, they'll, they won't be, they'll be paired up with someone who's, um, who's who has sight, uh, so this was to make the the training safer. So that to me, that is a major adaptation. Now, with a lot of the things that we have to adapt for blind students, do you think that that in any ways compromises their self defense component? Because obviously, if they're out there and actually get attacked, it's going to be a sighted person attacking them and. They are not going to adapt anything. They are not going to find like things that they got to attack you in a nice way so you can. Um, uh, uh, no, I, I don't. I don't think so because when they're training, it's still in a very controlled environment, and we want to make sure that it's all safe. And uh, but they're still learning the same techniques and the same everything. Um, it's just more more from the training perspective. We don't want anyone to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I'm sure that people who are blind don't want to get accidentally punched in the face 10 times either. So, so that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a positive thing for everyone because also, from my experience, a lot of people who are blind are hesitant to do martial arts and self-defense training because they're, they, they fear of getting injured. Uh, so our goal is also not just, um, you know, we want to make the environment safe and, uh, you know, to the, um, to the people who are with visual impairment as well. So tell us about your current uh, program for the blind, like how many classes a week and what's the class, size so, of the class like? Right. So at the moment, uh, we actually don't offer any group lessons. We do only private lessons uh, right now at our school. Um, the main reason was, as you mentioned earlier, about transportation. Uh, we find it, or the participants found it very, very challenging to get to our facility on an ongoing basis. So we had to... Um, stopped the, the group lessons um, a few years ago, but we still have individuals who come in for private lessons. Um, do you personally train them, or is that like mostly like left out to your senior students now? Um, uh, our students don't teach, so everyone who works at our school is, is, a, is a paid instructor, paid professional. So, so it's either myself or, or, or my staff, but everyone who is teaching is is, is that's their job or their career. Um, okay, so before we go off air, 
uh, would you like to plug your website or anything? No, just uh, let everyone know how to find you and your program. Uh, sure. Uh, if anyone's in the Metro Vancouver, um, um, our school name is Cerebus Alchemy. Uh, it's cerebusalchemy.com. I know it's a little bit uh, complicated to find on the, inter- uh, on, the on the browser. Um, if any of uh, Taekwondo instructors who are seeking platforms to learn how to teach people with visual impairments, we have an online course. It's, uh, you can find that at parataekwondo.com. And I'm also in the process of creating a, a, martial, uh, a, a program, a same thing, an instructor program, online program for all martial artists, not just Taekwondo specific, which will be uh, hopefully uh, released sometime this year. And that is going to be like, under the therapeutic martial arts banner. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's a true pleasure. Over 70% of crimes occur in dark places during dark hours. And over 30% of those involve a weapon. Being alert is the first rule of survival. Uh, come on, man. She's blind. She ain't gonna have nothing. <laughs> come on, man. This'll be easy. So easy. That's right, man. Come on, don't be such a little wuss. I can feel their eyes on me. And they are closing in. Three of them. Hey, sweetie. Are you lost? Oh, oh. Maybe we could help you out. Second rule of survival, stay calm, be ready. You got any money on you? Come on, let me see. Come on, let me see what you got in there. Come on, let me see some money. Give me some money. Come on, give me your money. Come on, give me your money. Give me your money. Gun pressed to my forehead, look scared. Element of surprise is the third rule of survival. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Take it easy there. What are you guys doing? What is that? It's a gun, you butt! Got to move fast. Deflect the barrel away from me. One less to worry about. Follow through with rule number four. Carry the low line stab in from the right. <laughs> Control. Neutralize. Learn how to protect yourself and your loved ones. Visit www.tacticalpersonalprotection.com. Mention the Johnny Tiger experience for your free session today. Three men were out walking their dog one night when they came upon the bar. The first man said, let's go get us a drink. The second man said, good idea, I can really use one right now. The third man said, uh, I don't know, how are we going to get in, what are we going to do with our pooches? 
first man said, no problem at all, watch me. He strolled out to the bar as if he owned the place, pushed his way through the swinging door. Immediately, the bouncer came forward to stop him. Sir, said the bouncer, you cannot take your dog in here. Not even a guide dog? said the first man. Oh, excuse me, sir, I didn't know. That, that's okay then, that's okay then. Enjoy yourself, said the bouncer. Outside, the two men were astounded. The second man immediately walked up into the bar through the swinging door. Immediately, the bouncer came forward to stop him. Sir, sir, no dogs allowed in here. I'm sorry, but my understanding was the guide dog can go anywhere they want. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. Please, enjoy yourself, said the bouncer, and stepped out of the way. Oh, this may just work, thought the last man outside. So he strode up into the bar, through the swing door, and again the bouncer rushed forward. Sir, sir, no dogs allowed in here. Yeah, but this is a guide dog. Right, said the bouncer dubiously. Since when do they ever give Chihuahua as guide dogs? Aw, oh, shit, said the guy. They gave me a fucking Chihuahua? <laughs> the power of quick thinking right there. I always wanted Chihuahua as a guide dog. That would be such a great chick magnet. Before we end the show today, again, I want to give a shout out to Master Michael Serota and his program. Head over to www.serotasalchemy.com to find out more. That's www.sirotasalchemy.com. If you enjoy the Johnny Tiger Experience podcast, why not considering becoming a patron? Head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Johnny Tiger Experience. It's all one word, all lower letter. Again, that magical website is www.patreon.com forward slash Johnny Tiger Experience. Any feedback or comment, feel free to hit me up at johnnytiger at shaw.ca. That's J-O-H-N-N-Y-T-I-G-E-R at S-H-A-W dot C-A. You can also find me and my videos on johnnytiger.com or on YouTube, Reddit, Facebook, and Google. Thank you for being here with me for this great episode. I will see you guys in the next episode.
长生，那就这样的风，一唱一和，感受着我的繁华，心情却也变得荒芜，在花雪世上。天上的星星不说。